Hey friends, you are listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. To learn more about Grace Story and how you can get plugged into our community, visit gracestory.church. The sermon text for this evening is from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 30. Romans 8, verses 18 to 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. All right, that's Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. Romans 8, 18 through 30. If you guys followed along on the news or social media with the revival happening in Wilmore, Kentucky right now, yeah, it's been a really beautiful thing to watch. Asbury University is experiencing a revival, and from all accounts, from different sources that I really trust, it seems to be legitimate and genuine. And they've been in worship now for over 90 hours as they've just sensed the Holy Spirit um, continuing to draw them into worship. And what really is beautiful about that is what they're experiencing, or at least what they think they're experiencing and claim to be experiencing is a foretaste of glory they're experiencing an awakening of a deep affection for one another and a deep affection for Christ and a deep longing to worship continually that's actually going to define reality in the next age when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom and in this text what we're being moved by Paul 
to see is that we're waiting for something very specific. We're waiting for glory. We're waiting for a very specific glory to be revealed. And we're going to see in this text exactly what that means, exactly what that looks like, and exactly what that entails. So without further ado, let's dive into the passage than which no other has led to more firings of pastors in the history of the church. So I'm excited to preach it to y'all today. Romans 8, 18 through 30. So the first thing I want us to see is that as we're waiting for glory, we wait eagerly. We wait eagerly. Look at verses 17 through 21. 18 through 21, rather. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we're waiting eagerly for glory to be revealed. And this is going to happen not in the present time, but it's going to happen in the future. And the first way this is going to happen is that the creation is going to see the revealing of the sons of God. Now this takes me back to Genesis chapter 1. And it reminds me of this line from a book I wrote a long, long time ago that goes, One thing was still missing and God knew the thing. The earth would be perfect when given a king. And it's this idea that even as creation approaches completion, all the containers of the cosmos have been created and all of them have been filled space sky land and sea they've all been filled creation still not complete because there's no one to rule it as God would rule it if God were them and so God creates the humans and when he creates the humans check this out he reveals the sons of God he reveals the sons of God. In fact, the word likeness is intended to get across to us this idea that humans are made to be in a relationship of sonship to God. We can say sons and daughters. It counts for you too, ladies, right? We're the children of God by nature of our creation. And so what Paul's saying here is that creation now, just like there was a longing expectation in the heart of God to reveal the sons of God at creation, there's a longing on the part of creation to see the sons of God revealed once more. Those who are going to hold this role for all eternity in a new creation that fully reflects the glory of God. So we're waiting for this glory to be revealed. And the reason that we're waiting is because of a couple things that Paul points out here. The first one is that because our current reality is marked by what? Futility. It's marked by futility. In other words, it's marked by card houses that we spend hours and hours putting together, painstakingly placing every single card only to, at the very worst moment, get a tickle in our nose and sneeze and knock the whole thing down in an instant. 
That's the world that we live in. It's, it's, it's marked by futility. And even our grandest efforts at progress are quickly, quickly shaken to dust by a creation that's been given over to futility. In other words, it's been handed over to meaninglessness in the sense that there's no rhyme or reason to the chaos that ensues in the world and the disasters that come and the sickness and the decay. All of that is futility. It undermines our efforts at bringing beauty and order and goodness and excellence to the world. Futility. And because of that, we see it, we experience it every time we stub our toes or step on a Lego. We experience the futility of this creation. And if our thoughts are rightly ordered, then that pushes us to long for another world, doesn't it? We long with eager expectation for the glory to be revealed. And Paul says that the sufferings of this present time, which we talked about last week, suffering is not something we have to chase because it's chasing us. It's coming. We don't have to pursue suffering. We will suffer. But what sets us apart is how we suffer. And so now Paul is adding fuel to that and telling us that the sufferings that we encounter now are almost weightless in comparison with the glory that's going to be revealed in a world that is not futile, a world that is not constantly falling apart, a world that is not constantly being reduced to nothing. If you haven't read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, has anybody read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? Amazing piece of literature. And the way that C.S. Lewis captures our future world is brilliant because what happens is Here's the way it works. There's a group of people taking a field trip from hell to heaven, right? And on the field trip, they recognize is that heaven, not from hell, sorry, from purgatory rather. And what they realize is that in heaven, the world is much more real than they are. So much more real, for example, that when they try to stand on the water get into the water they can't get in it they can only like try to stay level as they get on it and it's almost like riding a treadmill because the water is so much more real than they are there's this realness there's this richness there's this solidity to the new world that's going to make everything in this world seem almost like a phantom in comparison that's the way C.S. Lewis portrays it in The Great Divorce. It's brilliant. And what we know is that since this world is marked by futility, we're longing for this other one. But Paul tells us that even our suffering here is if we weight it in the scales against the reality that God is preparing for us, it would be as nothing. It's not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. So glory is coming. So we wait eagerly. But here's the next thing. We don't just wait eagerly. We also wait patiently. We wait patiently. Look at verses 22 through 25. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Woo! Man, I'm just like remembering the childbirths that I have witnessed. And it's, it's there's groaning that happens. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. So the first thing we need to see is that we groan. And there's this beautiful image here that Paul creates where it's a groaning for childbirth. In other words, there's this groaning that we're going to be, we're going to see the, the birth of a new creation. So creation is groaning with childbirth, but we're groaning too. But it's not going to be childbirth that we experience. What are we going to experience? Adoption, Right? So the creation's groaning to give birth, but we're groaning to be adopted, to finally be adopted. So Paul plays this metaphor between natural childbirth and adoption and shows that they both include this deep longing for a familial relationship, for this new relationship to come into existence. So creation longs for it and we long for it because we want to be adopted. And what happens is in both of these cases... What we're looking for is something that has to do with the body, right? Creation is longing to give birth to a new creation. It's going to be physical. And look at what Paul says we're longing for here in verses 22 through 25. We ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons. And what does the adoption as sons entail? It's renamed as the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. So we'll enter in fully to adoption as sons. That'll be consummated. In other words, it'll be completed finally when we receive new, redeemed, renewed bodies. That's adoption as sons. So we're waiting eagerly for that. We're longing for this new body that is no longer subject to what? You following the argument? You seeing what Paul's doing? We're longing for this new body that's no longer subject to decay. It's no longer subject to futility. It's no longer subject to illness and disease. It's no longer subject to the problems that define life in a body on earth. And he says that we wait in a specific way. We wait with hope. We wait with hope. How? Well, because this is something that we don't see yet. Nobody can hope for something that they don't see. Hope, by definition, entails something that we cannot see. I like to say that hope is faith standing on its tiptoes, right? Hope is faith that's pressed into action by some sort of difficulty or some sort of, some sort of lack or some sort of, um, it's pressed into action by some sort of suffering. Hope is faith that is desperately needed, right? So hope is when we are pressed and we desperately want the thing that we believe, now we're hoping. And so whenever we hope, there's only one way to do that. We have to hope with patience. Because by definition, we're hoping for something that is not here yet. If we continue to hope for it, then that's a demonstration of patience. Because patience is the ability to continue on a path in spite of difficulty, right? That's what patience is. Don't get confused and think that patience is the ability to stay in a good mood when somebody's bothering you, right? 
That's long-suffering. It's a good thing. And it might be related to patience. It might be patience that gets you there. But patience is the ability to stay on a path despite how difficult the path may be. And so we wait with patience. We continue hoping. We continue waiting even as this takes longer than we wish it would. I would like a perfect body now, please, right? I would love that. So we wait patiently. Then look at what Paul says. We don't just wait with patience, but we wait dependently. We wait dependently. Verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. According to the will of God. So the first thing to notice is that the Holy Spirit helps us. And what does the Spirit help us do? The Holy Spirit helps us, in particular in this passage, wait with patience and wait eagerly. The Holy Spirit's doing that in us, for us, through us. And the Spirit does this in our weakness, in other words, in ways that we couldn't do ourselves. The Holy Spirit helps us to long for something we couldn't otherwise long for. The Holy Spirit helps us to wait for something we couldn't otherwise wait for. The Holy Spirit helps us have patience when we couldn't otherwise be patient. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And he says that the Holy Spirit does this in a particular way. How? By interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. So, when we're looking at our lives, we're looking at our situations, right? The obvious reality is we do not know how to pray. Because we do not know the mind of God. We don't know what outcome is best for us. We don't know what outcome aligns best with God's purposes. We don't know the mind of God, but the Holy Spirit does. And so what Paul says is that even in our weakness, we don't know how to pray. And we're, we're caught in this realization we don't know how to pray. And sometimes we do, by the way. Sometimes God gives us clarity. Sometimes we have great confidence in our prayers. Sometimes, sometimes we don't experience this like. But what Paul's saying is that even when we do like it, we don't know how to pray. We're lost. We're scared to pray. We're without the ability to kind of navigate the question of prayer. The Holy Spirit helps us. And how does he do that? Because the Holy Spirit, just like creation groans, right? Just like we groan, what Paul says is that the Holy Spirit groans. And he does this as he intercedes for us. And he does this with groanings that are too deep for words. Now, the, if, if we were to look at a very literal translation of this, it would say with wordless groanings or soundless groanings that's the that's the very literal translation and so this is a this is sometimes cited as a text in favor of like speaking in tongues you guys are familiar with speaking in tongues and it this text probably isn't talking about that but it does reference the same kind of work of the spirit that is referenced when scripture does talk about speaking in tongues so it doesn't seem to be referencing that gift, 
but it does point to the same kind of work of the Spirit. The Spirit is praying for us even when our minds are not capable of praying, praying rightly. The Holy Spirit's mind is capable of praying rightly. So the Holy Spirit does that. And we find out that the reason that the Holy Spirit can do this is because he knows the mind of the Spirit and the Spirit intercedes for the saints, that's those who are in Christ, right? And he prays this according to the will of God, according to God's purpose. So we wait dependently. It's with the power of the Holy Spirit. And how many times have you been in that situation? Have you ever had a situation? For me, I've had situations that seem to linger for months and years where I don't have clarity about how to pray. I don't know the mind of God. I don't know which way God's pointing me. I don't know which way God's leading me. And I have questions that are beyond my capacity to reason my way through, right? So there's many times when it seems as though my lips are silent, but I know and I trust and I actively trust that the Spirit of God is interceding on my behalf, interceding in me, through me, for me, in accordance with the will of God. And so listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, saints of the Most High God, you are never truly prayerless. If you're in Christ, you are never truly prayerless. And God help us if we sense, if we don't sense this connection to God that assures us that the Holy Spirit is praying on our behalf. Have you sensed it? Have you known it? That even though you don't have words, that the Holy Spirit is praying for you, with you, through you? Now this is not a license for laziness. And it's not a license to just skip our prayer time. It's not a license to skip over the disciplines that form us in the likeness of Jesus. But it's a reassurance that when we lack clarity, when we lack confidence, that the Holy Spirit lacks neither of those things, but helps us, joins us, and carries us in prayer to the Father. So we wait, we wait dependently. And here's the beautiful part. We wait confidently. We wait confidently. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this is called the golden chain of salvation by theologians. What we need to see here, the bottom line that we need to get our heads around, is that God will finish what he started. God will finish what he started. Look at what he's going to do. He's going to glorify us, right? In other words, we're going to experience the redemption of our bodies, our adoption 
into sonship. It's going to be consummated. You've already been adopted. In the moment that you place your faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit inhabits your hearts, you're adopted. But that adoption is going to be consummated. It's going to be fulfilled at the redemption of your bodies. I've never adopted a child, but I think Curtin Morgan can attest to the fact that there are stages. And there's a moment when adoption is, is enacted. And then there's a moment when it is validated that it is real and it's legal and it's, you have complete confidence that this is never going to be taken away from you. All right? So your, your adoption in Christ is initiated. And it's sure, it's certain, but it's going to be consummated. And we're going to have perfect confidence because we're going to have a perfect body. It's going to have happened. And we'll know we're adopted as sons. It'll be revealed to all creation. So God's going to glorify us with bodies that can never decay. And he's already justified us, right? And this is how we know that we'll be glorified, by the way. If you've been justified, then you can know you will be glorified. Only those who are justified will be glorified. Everybody got that? Who will be glorified? Only those who are? That's right. And justified means that by God's grace, we've been set on the right side of our relationship with him. We begin as enemies because of our willful rebellion against his ways. But through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our faith therein, God moves us from this place of enmity to this place of friendship. So we've been declared legally righteous in the eyes of God. We're justified. All of that because of what Jesus has accomplished. So we're justified. Now, we're also called. In fact, it says that those whom he called, he also justified. So in order to be justified, you have to first be called. Right? Only those who are called, only those who are called can be justified. Right? And all of those who are called will be justified. Who can be justified? Those who are, that's right. Called simply means that through the work of the Holy Spirit, God beckons us to place our faith in Christ. He awakens our hearts to trust in the gospel. And he uses the mechanism of the gospel to do this. God uses the preaching of the gospel to awaken dead hearts so that we would place our faith in him. The Holy Spirit uses that mechanism to do that beautiful and life-saving work. So who God calls, he also justifies. Only who he calls, he also justifies. And we have this other thing that happens. Some of us are predestined. In fact, it's exactly those who are predestined who are also called, right? All of those who are called were first predestined. Only those who are predestined are also called. In order to be called, you have to be predestined. In order to be called, you have to be what? Yeah. So predestined means that God determines beforehand the destiny of those who will be called. Now, this is where we start to get into the things that get people fired. This is where we start to meddle in the mind of God to a degree that many pastors have been excused from their responsibilities. And I'm not worried about that. Excuse me if you want to. I'll be very sad, but I'll also be okay. What would make me more sad is if I were not truthful with God's word. And what seems to be happening here is that God is exercising perfect, complete sovereignty 
in his determination of who will be called, which leads those people to be also justified, which leads them also to be glorified. Now, this is what's crazy. We read this text and we hear about the perfect, exhaustive sovereignty of God and his predestination, his determining beforehand the fate of these humans who will later trust in him. And then we read an entire Bible that speaks to us of our responsibility to obey this God. And so what we know is real is that God is in complete control of every moment and every molecule in his creation. Complete control. He exercises perfect control so that no molecule has ever strayed outside of the path that God ordained for it to follow. And we also serve a God who gives us real responsibility to obey what he's commanded us to do. Now, when we start to piece these two things together, now we're getting into the work of human minds. Now we're getting into the work where it's our minds that have to sort out the relationship between these two realities. Now, there's no biblical category for what is referred to as free will because there was no, there was no philosophical category that would allow that question to arise when the Bible was written. But there is a biblical category for agency, right? So when humans were created, were created specifically as what? The agents of God. We're created to, to represent him with real agency as we carry out his purposes in the world. And so we have, to, we have to keep that in mind as we think about the definition of humanity and we try to sort out this mystery that exists between God's absolute perfect control over all that he's made and our absolute responsibility to follow him and obey him in all that he's asked us to do. So, in order to be called, you have to first be predestined. And here's the kicker. In order to be predestined, you have to first be foreknown. Foreknown. Those who foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. So what's happening here is that there's this word for new, and it's this word that has to, it's, it's whatever is happening with this word is the necessary, the necessary cause of what's going to happen next, which is for us to be predestined. Now this word for new, it happens five times in the New Testament. Five times. Of those five, we have two that look like they mean something like uh, I knew ahead of time, right? Like Kind of like what the English word sounds like it means, I knew ahead of time. Two of them sound more like I decided ahead of time. You with me? The, the one that's in Romans, the other instance that's in Romans, Romans 11, is certainly in the it falls more in the category of decided ahead of time. So this seems like it's probably talking about something like a prior decision. It's a prior decision on the part of God to determine who will be predestined. And that's how this relationship is sorted out. But it is possible. It's not, it's not impossible for it to be just a blank 
knowledge, like a, a, a knowing beforehand, but it's highly unlikely given the way that this word group is used in the Old Testament. Is that fair? So one of those two things is going on. And it's this foreknowledge, however you define it, that leads to God's predestining those who will follow the rest of this chain of salvation. But again, the bottom line is this. Once God has started your salvation, you can trust that God will finish your salvation. God will finish what he started. Have you guys ever asked a bunch of kids what heaven's going to be like? Anybody? Just ask a room full of kids what heaven's going to be like. If you ask, I have, you're going to get answers kind of like this. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be sleepovers with unicorns. Or there's going to be a room filled with nothing but mountains of tacos. Or there's going to be the ability to fly. I'm kind of hoping for bacon myself. I kind of have this ongoing debate in my mind about whether potentially there could be bacon. And it gets deep, by the way. But here's the reality. This is, this is the amazing thing. We want to know what the new creation is going to be like, don't we? Don't you want to know? Don't you just want to see it? Don't you want to experience it? But check this out. This is creation wants to know what you're going to be like. Creation wants to know what you're going to be like. Creation is groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. The big deal about heaven is not going to be the features that we think about. It's not going to be the elements that make up the landscape. It's not going to be the special abilities that we are hoping for. It's not going to be the bacon on the table at the marriage supper of the lamb, right? It's not, that's not the thing. The prime feature of heaven of course, is going to be the glory of God, but it's going to be the glory of God reflected in his son and his brothers and sisters who are revealed now as the sons of God. So if you ask creation, what's, what's heaven going to be like? Man, it's going to be filled with a lot of you except for perfect. That's what heaven's going to be like. Heaven is all about the revealing of God's work in you. So here's the question. Are you living your life in such a way as to prepare to be the, the prime feature of God's eternal kingdom. Underneath of Christ, handing our crowns to him, bowing in glad submission to him, casting all of the glory to him. But are you prepared for Creation's longing, groaning expectation to see who God is forming you to be. Because our life right now is either preparing us for that or it's throttling. It's throttling God's effort to move us toward that. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's clarity. Thank you for um, this hope, this hope that we have that we will finally arrive at the moment when our adoption as sons will be consummated, complete, fully fulfilled. No longer will we wait, no longer will we hope, but we will experience in fullness what it means to be the redeemed sons of God. We're thankful that we'll have the opportunity to cast our eyes upon Jesus. And Lord, we're humbled and we tremble at the thought that creation longs to see the work that you're doing in us. God, may we live our lives in such a way that we prepare to be one of the prime features of your eternal kingdom for the sake of the glory of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. For more resources and information on our church, visit gracestory.church.